Hi, everybody. Jesus, I'm late. Sorry about that. I had a lot of shit going on. It is Friday, May 1st, 2020, and this is episode 31 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Hi, my name is Luke Thomas. You already know that. I am the host of the Luke Thomas show on Sirius XM and one half of the hosting duo for Showtime's digital program, Morning Combat. Yes, indeed I am. Uh, okay, what is happening here? Oops, I have to open up Stream Deck. Jesus, if it's not one thing, it's the next. Um, this is my live chat. We go for about, uh, what do you want to say? I don't know. Roughly an uh, hour and a half. So without further ado, let's get things started. Oops, hang on. Crying out loud. All right. As always, subscribe to the channel. Always appreciate that when you do. Which way I need to go here? This way, yep. Uh, so appreciate that when you do. Uh, what else do I need you to do? I need you to give the video a thumbs up. That whole uh, bit. And uh, yeah, okay. So before we get started with the questions, I have some housekeeping notes to get to. Namely, we had collected your donations from the, uh, well, the donations to this live chat for the entire month of April. Plus I threw in an extra one in March and the video I did just for the normal ad rev for the immediate reaction to UFC 249 being initially canceled back in April. So the grand total, and by the way, we're giving to the Capital Food Bank and for them, they're able to convert every dollar into, I think, two and a half meals, something like that, right? So um, we have a grand total and the grand total is from you guys, $2,180. Okay, so $2,180. Very good job. I told you I would throw in a donation on half. Uh, or, so I'm not on half, I should say, but on top of it. And so I'm going to throw in an a, a additional 320 which will bring us to an even $2,500. $2,500 is collectively um, what we were able to raise for the Capital Area Food Bank. If you want more information about them... Let's see, Capital Area Food Bank. It is the website. It is capitalareafoodbank.org. Uh, capital spelled with all A's, no O's. Um, so uh, I'm going to give them the donation either tonight or tomorrow. I, have to, I may have a bunch of stuff going on tonight. But yes, $2,500 is how it's going to go. That's going to feed. Again, you can see on their website here, if you actually click on the donate button, um, one dollar they can convert to two and a half meals. Now, how they're able to make that magic work, I don't know. But uh, the meals, uh, those meals, make it possible for a child to focus in school, for mom to make it through her night shift, and pay her family's bills, and for a senior citizen to avoid life-threatening illnesses. Your generosity can transform lives. So, if my math is correct, um, let's see. Um, I'm not even sure what the math would be on this one because my brain is not working right. But if we were giving two thousand, it would have been, let's see. Um, Da, 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 da. So that equals about what thirty two hundred fifty meals, something like that. No, excuse me. If it was a thousand, would be twenty five hundred. So two thousand would be five thousand. So this would actually be six thousand two hundred and fifty. Sorry, my math is a little bit off today. Uh, yeah. So there you have it. Uh, uh, over six thousand meals to people who need it. So thank you for everyone who donated this past month. And once I get it donated i will make them verify it i will make sure this is all above board so that you don't think i'm just taking your money and scamming you i will make sure that there's acknowledgement of it i'll give the i think once you donate it gives you like a tracking number on it 
So um, whatever I have to do to make sure that there's all verification of the process. But thank you out there for helping us get that done. It's going to feed a lot of hungry people in your nation's capital if you live here in the United States. So um, really, really appreciate that. Okay, I am late. I'm already 12 minutes into the hour. So if you would like to donate, this will this is you know now we're back to sort of normal things. I've made some major production upgrades, which I will debut. The, the hope is to get it ready for UFC 249. I, um, I'll definitely have it ready, I think, post-fight. I don't know if I'm ready pre-fight, but it depends on the delivery system. But um, I'm investing in this whole process again. I don't sit here and just, you know, obviously I cannot go out to eat. I, I do it to make all this better. So, um, so anyway, but for, thanks to everyone who did that. That may not be the last fundraiser that we do. In fact, I think it probably won't be, but it was at least the initial one that we did. All right? All right. With that in mind, let's get to it. Okay. Da -da 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 -da. And your questions. All right. 162 of them. All right. First question. Can you share a time when you broke through the proverbial wall during some sort of personal athletic feat either mentally or physically, when watching MMA, particularly in later rounds and or in violent matches, I can only imagine the walls that these athletes push through to keep fighting and how they must try to simulate those moments in training, e.g. Izzy on the Aerodyne. I think it takes a special part of a person to answer this call, and it's something perhaps only a minority of people experience in their lives. Yeah, a couple times it's happened to me. Um, well, there's different kinds, right? Many different kinds. There's one where you have a goal in mind, and you fail 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 and then you try to get better at it and then eventually you do but it takes a lot of time so I had very very small ones um, I didn't get into lifting weights until I was about mm, 16 17 or so and I remember I was trying to like do my own and uh, this is a true story when I was in high school big nerd right <clears throat> when I first started before I could lift weights I couldn't do a single pull-up nothing zero couldn't do one body weight pull-up. And I was like, well, that is fucking pathetic. So we cannot let that go. So I remember I just worked on them and worked on them and worked on them and worked on them. And I had friends help me and I worked on it. And I went to the weight room and I worked on it and I worked on it and I worked on it. And then I took my next test. God, when was that? Like three, maybe four months later. And this is talking like consistent work on getting stronger, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, specific application towards the, uh, the pull-up. And I think after three or four months, I got to six. And then after another six months total, maybe nine months, I got to 12 pull-ups. And then by the time I went to boot camp, uh, I was able to do 14, right? So just like steady working at it. Now, that's not the one you're talking about where, um, you know, you have this moment of incredible duress. Um you know, another one I had was I was I've never I've never been a good runner and I'll never be a good runner. It's just I've never had it in me. Uh, now maybe if I really tried, you could have been, but you get the idea. It was just not. It was not a. It was not a thing that came naturally. We can put it that way. Um, the best time I ever had in a three mile run was 19 minutes, and I remember I was so tired and I hadn't slept. This is part of the crucible, which is like the last week of boot camp where they just sort of shove you through it all. Um, and. I was tired and dehydrated, and I had blisters all over my feet, and they were f painful, and they were bleeding, and it was horrible, right? It was terrible, and we had to do a PFT that day, and uh, I'll never forget I had my fastest time because I was so angry and pissed off and, like, in misery, 
And I found that the faster I ran, the more I felt I could harness that for like horsepower. And it also made my feet feel better because the, the, the heat from the rubbing, it hurt at first, but then it went away. And I ran it in 19 minutes that day. I was pretty happy with that. Um, but definitely like in wrestling training where, um, you know, you're doing round after round after round and you've got like, you know, you went through like the first, the, 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 the toughest guy, you know, here's how, here's how it is. I've been, I've had a couple of practice sessions where you're doing two minute rounds and you think in two minute rounds, anybody can do a two minute round, but two minute round of wrestling is a, it, it's an eternity and you're doing, and they're treating it like a BJJ round where it's like a lot of gyms might put four, eh, five, six, seven minutes on the clock on the trainer. And the class goes like this. They'll teach for 30 minutes or an hour or how long they teach, 45 minutes. And they'll usually reserve some time at the end of class to sparring. And it depends how much time they want to spend on that. You know, every it, it varies place to place. Typically, you know, 15 to 30 minutes or more. And uh, so you might do two, three rounds. If it's 15 minutes, you might do more than that. But the way it would work is, you know, let's say five minutes on the clock. Some do more, some do less. And the five minutes expire. Then the clock goes, you know, you you adapt the guy up or the lady up or whatever. And then you have a minute. Then they tell you to switch and find somebody new. And you just keep going until all the rounds are over. You're not supposed to sit out. But in wrestling training, do they, they, they like, they like just straight up told you you can't sit out. And, um, you know, if you're injured or whatever, it's fine. But if you're tired, no. And I remember there's a couple times where, you know, I was getting my ass kicked. This is very early on. And uh, I had to go against the toughest guys early. And so you're already drained. And then you had to go against guys who you knew you were better than when you were fresh. Like, if, we're, if I'm fresh and he's fresh, I win. And they were not nearly as tired as you. And you had to just, yeah, you can't let them win. And your whole body is screaming. Like, you ever know when you're running or whatever, lifting weights or whatever, and you get tired and your brain is telling you to stop. You know, partly that's sort of a biological response that's actually kind of natural. But the other part is, you know, you see these quotes like fatigue makes cowards of men. I mean, every part of your body is is incentivizing you to stop and to silence that. And, you know, you could say it's for ego reasons about, you know, why you wouldn't want to lose to somebody you're better than you're going to or you're better than you're going to lose to somebody you're better than routinely. It's, go, it's going to happen. But the point being is that you don't just relent to the current taking you out to ocean. Like you don't just let the riptide take you. You actually you actually decide to fight it a little bit. And once you begin to do that, there have been times where I had to crawl out of there on my hands and knees. I had to like I could not even get up to like dap people at the end of class. Because I was completely, completely and utterly spent. Not one energy. Le- I mean, I was like too tired to breathe at times. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't even take a big breath like that because I didn't have the energy to force that vacuuming in. And uh, you know, you're proud of yourself for some of the achievements and situations like that. But you have, and even in, in in other parts of the military where you know you haven't slept and you know you've got 20 miles to march with all your gear on, and you know it's. There's you, every step along the way you would, and more than 20, sometimes 23, 25, like you, you just, you don't want this anymore. And some, it, I found the best situations for that was when like, you actually can't stop. Like if y'all are marching somewhere, what do you do? You're going to sit down. You actually have to do it. You, you just don't have a choice. And once you do that and you realize you, you can marshal mental resources to give to it. You'd be surprised at what you're capable of. And there were times where, you know, you just didn't, you're like, how am I going to get through this? And you just found a way to do it. And afterwards, you really began to realize in, in, until you've been, until you've truly blown the lungs out and until you've truly 
you know, had to, you had to summon every psychological and mental will power that you had to get through something. You don't even realize how much of a slave to your mind you are, you know? And I can't even imagine what that must be. I mean, that's nothing compared to what Izzy must have felt like heading into the fifth round of a fight against Kelvin Gastelum. I mean, that's another level. That's, that's, that's not even another level. That's a different order of magnitude. But um, a lot of people don't like to get pushed because getting pushed sucks, right? It does not feel good to get pushed. But the reality is until you've really, I mean really been pushed, well beyond what you think your limits are, you don't realize how artificial those limits are. You don't, you don't realize that you, know, you can do so much more than you think you can. And if it wasn't for other people from the outside forces pushing me, I don't think I would have had the internal resource to seek that out. I actually needed, I needed some kind of, you know, exogenous pressure to get me to do that. Everyone will be different in that regard. But yeah, there's been several moments where in the immediate moment and then like sort of these long-term things, you know. Uh, Prime Michael Bisping versus Darren Till at middleweight. Who wins the Battle of the Brits? That's a great question. My, you know, here's the, here's the problem with the question. We've seen every version of my, Michael Bisping, so you're asking about the Prime version. The problem with it all is that we've not still seen Prime Darren Till. Like, he had that big reformation against Kelvin Gastelum in his last fight, and he looked phenomenal. But I don't know that we've really seen the Prime version of that. So if you're asking the version who beat Kelvin Gastelum, the most recent, more mature version, versus the very best Michael Bisping, I actually might like Michael Bisping there. And the reason why is I think Darren Till would have something for him early. And we and, and the big lesson from the Kelvin Gastelum fight was he showed discipline over the course of three rounds. But nevertheless, I just don't think folks realized how mentally resilient. If, if Michael Bisping ever had a superpower, it was mental resilience and how strong. I mean, he got viciously nearly KO'd in, what, the third round against Silva. Go look at the, the fight metric stats for round four. He actually had better stats in that round than any other round. Uh, including other rounds you think he may have won. So, you know, you think about some of the matchups. Uh, if, t you know, Bisping was good about keeping distance when he needed to. He'd be heavy on volume behind the jab. He actually could mix in the wrestling. He had unending cardio. He could kind of put the steady, slow pressure on Darren to, I think, wear down his defenses so that by the time, in a five-round fight, I'd like Michael Bisping. Three-round fight, I think it's a lot dicier for him. But a five-rounder, I'll take Bisping in that one. Yeah. Who are nightmare matchups for the current UFC champs? All right, well, let's pull up the... Let's pull up the uh, UFC rankings. So I can remember everybody here. All right, who's a nightmare matchup for no one at flyweight? <laughs> um, who's a nightmare matchup for Henry Cejudo? Peter Yan might be. We'll see about Corey Sandhagen, too. He's been tearing people up. What, Volkanovsky? There is no nightmare matchup for him. There are tougher fighters than others, but there's no nightmare matchup. Holloway is going to be one of your tougher ones. Ortega, I don't think so. Zabit, I don't think so. Chan Sung Jung could be kind of interesting. You know, we'll see. Um, but that's about it there. For Nurmagomedov, there is no nightmare matchup that I can think of. Maybe Justin Gaethje, depending on how he performs against Tony, but that's very up in the air. I don't see anyone who's a nightmare matchup for the Nigerian nightmare, Kamaru Usman. For Israel Adesanya, Paulo Costa is a very interesting matchup because I think it's just his brute force and brutality 
can give the sort of cerebral approach of Israel Adesanya a lot more trouble than maybe others do. But, like, who's just a terrible matchup for him? I don't know. John Jones, I don't think anyone's a terrible matchup for him in that weight class. For Stipe, maybe a reformed Francis, but we're going to have to see. Uh, for Amanda Nunez, for Zhang Wiley, maybe Suarez if she can get healthy. You know, it's very speculative. And for Valentina, there is none. Not in her weight class, anyway. Obviously, you could say Amanda, but even then, those are pretty close fights. Someone asked Sean El Shadi and Chuck Mindenhall on the Man in the Myth podcast who would win in a drinking contest between them and the Morning Combat crew. Are you fucking kidding? We would bury those zeros. It wouldn't even be close. I, I could beat all three of them by myself. Are you shitting me? My liver hurts to the touch, motherfuckers. Y'all don't even know who you're playing with. That is a very easy task. Now, I'll give credit. Old, uh, old Mindenhall, you know, that old pickled liver bastard, he, he's a little bit more of a drinker than you might imagine. So, you know, of the three, he's the most worthy of adversaries. But I've drank with Brian Campbell. It's, you know, he's not, he doesn't have a whole lot there. Sean Elshadi's a nice kid. I'll say that about him. And, uh, you know, Chuck is a, you know, Chuck, he's going to have jaundice in his eyeballs like me probably in five years, but I will drink those fuckers under the table by myself. You give me Brian on my side, you know, this is very much, you know, this is, uh, God, what's an epic beatdown? You know, that ended pretty quickly. I don't know. This is Nick Diaz versus Katsunori Kakuno. It's not going to go real well for them. Showtime pays me to drink for one of their shows. I get paid to drink. I mean, I'm a professional drinker. <laughs> I'm doing it tonight with Brian Campbell. Fucking Morning Combat Classics. We're watching Errol Spence fights. Bro, I get paid to get sauced up, chilling in the cut. They don't want none of this. Come on now. What are your thoughts on TJ Dillshaw's potential road back to getting the belt back? And what matchups he may have? I mean, it's very... All this stuff is really hard to speculate on because... When's he going to come back? Who's going to be available? Blah, blah, blah. How's he going to look? I mean, let's see how he looks after the first time back. Some people are a little bit more dismissive of him than I am. Again, we've been over this before. People take PEDs because they work. Let's be very clear about that. But we don't know exactly how long he was using them and to what extent they had an effect, which is to say they could have had an effect for fights that went a long time. They could have had a less of an effect for fights that were pretty short. Right, he had some that went a little long, some that were particularly taxing, some that weren't. Um, he had obviously, if you want to say he used PEDs to get better at training, okay, right, to just do more of it and heal quicker. Fine, you can make that argument. Um, but if he's not on it now, he still has that wealth of knowledge he can rest on. So, you know what I mean? Like, there's, it's just not clear. Every time it's like, oh, someone took PEDs. Okay, how long? In what way? In what regimen? For what what express purpose? Because they can be used for a variety of different purposes. Um, so who's he going to fight? Blah blah blah. I mean, there's a lot of plus. He had shoulder surgery, which is you know a nightmare to come back from. There's just a lot of different questions here, and it would be way too speculative. I would say though, if he gets a top ranked guy, let's say top seven, and he beats them thoroughly, however improbable you may find that to be, I would say he'd be either one more fight from a title shot, or they might just give him one. To be honest with you. Is there an MMA fighter or topic you think would be suitable for an epic miniseries? 
like the last dance has been for the 90s Bulls. Most of the ones about like the UFC's origin days where you could, you know, have a good, compelling documentary they've done. Um, um, that's a good one. Obviously, someone's going to say Connor. I, you know, what I would like to see is... Um, Maybe the rise and fall of certain teams. You know, how they came together, had their heyday, and then they kind of fell apart. Or at least the versions together there that kind of fell apart. Uh, you could maybe do something like that. But, like, is there a run where, you know, in a, let's say a four or five, obviously they have more than that for the Bulls, but let's say a four or five-year period where they had dominant champions consistently winning in multiple weight classes over time, which would have to be the rough equivalent. Maybe, you know, Maybe. I still would want to go back to the AKA days where you had Fitch and Koscheck there and they're all trying to beat GSP. I think that'd be kind of interesting. That's not what you're asking here, but that would be interesting to me. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to think. I don't know. It's a tough one. It's a really tough one because I don't think there's any direct equivalent, to be quite honest with you. Uh, let's see. Also, like a lot of, you know, like, oh, Chuck versus Tito documentary. I'm kind of out on that, man. All right, Luke Rockhold has recently announced that he is gaining the itch to fight again. Is he gaining it or is he getting it? He appears to have opted for a more tactful and humble approach in his dealings with the press and other external outlets. Whilst this may indicate nominal changes to his attitude to the fight game, if any, I was wondering what biscuit you would be and why. That's a very interesting question. Getting back to Luke Rockhold, I've not heard the interviews, but I've, I've seen that he sort of said he wanted to come back and he talked about burnout. Um, you know, I, I, here's my whole attitude in that whole thing. If he can come back and be the guy that fought Michael Bisping the first time in Australia, I wouldn't have any reservations about it. Now, again, can he? I don't know. But you go back and you look at how fleet of foot and how nimble he was and just how dialed in he was. And you could see his brain was thinking, but it was also working off muscle memory and the two were just there and the defense was good. And the offense was clean. And it was just a really, really, I mean, he was a really great fighter. He was a really great fighter. And he kind of got away from that over time. And he, it was just the exact opposite. I had a whole thing I did on a Morning Combat Dissected about it. Against Blahovich. he didn't look anything approximating that. I mean, it wasn't even close. So, what I would say is, to the extent he can regain something like that, then I think he should go back and give it another shot, you know? But if it's just going to be, well, uh, you know, I, the damage is done, even if your attitude has changed. And I, I, by damage, I don't mean just the literal damage he took, but that this inability to recapture the very conditions under which you had the most success, which, by the way, might mean going back to middleweight, although I don't think it necessarily requires it. But you've got to be quick and fleet of foot, and you have to have great distance management, and you have to have a really strong kicking game, and you got to rely on it. You know, there's all those things that really made him very dynamic. I would need to see that again. Uh, Brandon asks, when my friends, some of whom are elite level athletes, fringe MLB six foot, and over, what's, what's a fringe MLB mean? Like they're in the, the minors or like they played in college? But with no MMA training background, watch UFC fights with me and see men flyweights and women fighting. They claim they'd be able to handle them pretty easily. 
I respond that without technical training, the flyweight men would probably knock them out and even the women's strawweights would mess them up. What would you say to my Neanderthal friends? Well, like, in a case where um, it was men versus women, that would really depend because there's going to be a major strength difference between a 125-pound man and a 125-pound woman. Uh, and even if the woman is really trained, she might, again, that's going to be a case-to-case scenario. Like, what is she going up against? Did she strike first? You know, did she go for the eyeballs, you know, uh, like, you know, fucking gouging someone? Or, you know, did she go up against like a sort of like a meth head who wasn't really all there versus, you know, some kind of experienced criminal who was armed? I mean, there's all kinds of situations where that's going to get a little bit dicey. Uh, For the dudes, though, your friends are going to get fucked up. I mean, not, again, even then there might be some exceptions depending on who they are, but in general, they're going to get their ass kicked. Demetrius Johnson showed me the mousetrap. He showed it to me uh, years ago. Actually, it was the last time I ever talked to him. We had him in studio, and he he promised he would show it to me if I never talked about what it actually was, and I never have. But I remember uh, I f- it requires him showing a degree of his physicality to make it happen, and I won't say more than that than, about it than that. And I was amazed. I was amazed at what he was able to show. Understand, he's half my size, quite literally. He's half my size. And you would not know that based on the demonstration that he showed me. Dude, he would fuck your friends up. Now, that's Demetrius. Okay. John Dodson, his, the speed on his knuckle game and the power, he would fuck your friends up. Bad. Bad. Um, who else is like a top one, you know, at 125 pounds? Let me pull up this rankings. Joseph Benavidez, he's a bit on the smaller end. He would fuck your friends up, too. Formiga would. Brandon Moreno, come on, come on. Your boys think he's got, they can handle the knuckle game of Brandon Moreno? Brandon Moreno would have his way with, with your friends. He'd have them eating out of, you know, pulling open his pocket, and then they have to hold their hand on the pocket and that kind of whole thing. It'd be ugly for your friends. Yeah, I know. People think they're small and that it's like almost some kind of circus attraction. Right? Like, you know, you just can't trust it. Uh, but that's not what it is. It's, it's yes, they're smaller, but they're smaller, insanely highly trained athletes who are used, used to maximizing every fiber of their, you know, muscle composition for ultimate damage. And, and they've been, you know, in the case of some of them, they've been doing it for a very long time at a high, high level. Here's a very simple way to, to, to solve this Pepsi challenge. When was the last time you ever saw anyone go into a gym and challenge a flyweight? Like, if this was so easy to do this, wouldn't some troll have done this by now? I mean, all the trolls, you know what they do? They, they go into a troll that calls out Deontay Wilder. Like, who was that dude? Charlie Zolanoff, I think was his name. Now, everyone's like, oh, well, you know, he, he's a dumbass, but you got to give him credit for calling out Deontay. And it's like, okay, I realize that you risk serious concussive um blows being landed on your skull if you call out Deontay Wilder he will he will certainly mess you up but you know in the end you're never going to do well with him anyway right I mean the whole point there is you're provoking this lion or something you're provoking this tiger and the tiger gets out of the cage in this case it's a little bit different about assessing the threat it's like what it's like more of a bobcat or something you know and even that analogy doesn't work quite right but here's my point you really want to show me how, how like super badass you are as a troll? Go find Demetrius Johnson over at, at Pancration, AMC, or AMC Pancration, whatever the name is anymore. 
you know, go find uh, Ray Borgs over there in uh, wherever the hell he is in Albuquerque at this point. Go find, um, you know, go to the Brazil and find Pantoja or go to Mexico and find some troll roll up on a UFC flyweight who's an average size dude. And let's see what they got. Don't you remember what Roger Huerta, a lightweight, did to that linebacker? Granted, the linebacker had been drinking, but he hit that woman. And Roger Huerta could have beaten that fuck within an inch of his life. And he was a third that guy's size. You know, he was going to play for the Atlanta Falcons. Roger Huerta demolished him. I, I just don't think people realize what they're, what they're up against here. So that's... A troll wants to show me how brave he is. Go do it up against a Demetrius Johnson or somebody like that. Because everyone's going to be like, oh, you can beat that guy. He's just a little old 125-er. Okay, watch, watch, you know, <laughs> watch Mighty Mouth will dislodge your fucking teeth is what he will do. Uh, let's see. Could someone successfully attack and finish Khabib with a similar move to Masvidal against Askren? You mean like in theory? Sure. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose. It's unlikely, but it's certainly possible. I'm not sure I understand the spirit of the question. Uh, you mean, does he have like a unique defensive liability similar to Askren? I don't think so. In fact, a lot of times early in his career, he does a little bit less. But a lot of times early in his career, go back and watch like fights up through Pat Healy or other ones like that. The bell rings and he actually backs, he goes into the opponent and then backs out on purpose and then circles away to draw them in. Uh, but draw them in slowly so that he can, you know, he can meet him in the middle and then get the takedown. So maybe there's an opportunity there, but, um, you know, that I'm not saying, I mean, ask yourself if Masvidal fought Askren a hundred times, how many times would that land? Probably the one time. So, uh, who are some of your favorite British comedians? You know, I have to confess, I am very much not up to date on British comedians. Um, but certainly there are, I'm sure many good ones. I will claim ignorance here, and uh, whatever insult you would like to hurl my way as a consequence of that, I apologize. I don't. I don't actually know. Um, I used to have a much better sense of it, but I've I've just lost touch. Callers on your uh, TLTS Luke Thomas show and people who donate to ask questions in the live chat seem normal for the most part. But why is it that most of your, <laughs> your mentions on Twitter and interactions seem like they're complete abject failures in life? Yeah, partly it's the medium, right? Um, you know, the and I, it's interesting. My emails are always really great too. Like, you know, you get the occasional troll or something like that. But in general, they're pretty thoughtful. Even when they challenge me, they're they're you know they they're trying to do it from a way to make a point in an earnest way. Like, it's great. I have it's, it's, I have no I have very little issue with it. Uh, as you indicated, the people who want like because the people who donate. You know, I get the occasional troll there too, but in general, they're like curious about the process in a good faith way. In in Twitter, it's free, number one, and number two, you get, I mean, the medium is overrun with people with just sort of bad faith posturing, but I think more than that, um, you know, I take a lot of stances that are counter to prevailing wisdom on occasion, counter to the typical fan's interest and uh, in, in the position that they would like to adopt and I do it in a very, you know, often, not always, but often a pretty hardcore, direct, and sometimes insulting way. And I think that generates and elicits a kind of response from a particular kind of person, you know, who just wants to battle. But you'll notice, like, they, you know, I've said it before, they're the ones who, I mean, you're going to be as right as you are wrong for the most part, right? And you might be a little bit more right on certain cases than wrong on other ones, but... In general, you have to deal with the fact that you're going to be right at times and wrong at times. And, okay, that's fine. 
But the ones who, like, you'll notice the people who, like, challenge the predominant views in the way in which you're describing, um, these are usually people who are not well-informed. These are what we would call low-information voters. Uh, it's a lot of Dunning-Kruger running through them. And so I've just learned to sort of ignore it for the most part. I mean, on occasion, I'll sort of, you know, spit back at them a little bit uh, these days. But it's just, a, it's just a time waste. But, oops, in general, it's the, it's the medium is what I would say. The medium typically is the one responsible for this. Um, and, again, the nature in which I interact on there and the way in which I present myself to the world. Um, because if, if you're listening to my radio show and then you wait for me to elicit callers, chances are you're interested in this process. Same with the live chat, you're interested in this process. Anyone can just scroll around on Twitter. And then, by the way, people can also just repackage your framing of something in a bad faith way to their bad to their audience, and now the audience thinks that you are the worst person in the world, and then they sort of come in to attack you. There's a lot of different reasons, I think, for that. So partly it's some of my doing, which I can acknowledge. I think partly it's the medium, and you know, I'm not for everybody, right? I think that's a pretty a, a, a fair statement, uh, and I'm especially not for low information voters who don't know much about anything they're discussing, which is here also me poking the bear on purpose. What chance do you give the UFC actually pulling off the remainder of the contractually obligated cards for ESPN? Now, you mean the remainder of the year? Boy, that is a great question. Okay, let's start. Let's start with the basics here. The next three cards, I think, happen no issue or virtually no issue. Okay, so that's three. That would that would bring them up to ten, by the way, which means at that point they'd owe thirty-two cards. Ooh. Huh. That is interesting. Um, I'd say a good chance. I'd say a good chance. I mean, we're not back in April 18th anymore. You know, states, however you want to say if it's good or it's bad, some states are beginning to reopen. They've got the mayor signing off on this in Jacksonville. They've got the governor signing off on this. And they've got the uh, commission signing off on this. Uh, they probably have ironed out some of their best practices. It's not the same as before. Now, how great the risk is, you, you know, I don't know. I don't. No one, none of us really know. It's kind of hard to say. Um, and whether or not you think it's a good idea or it's a bad one, we're not going to relitigate. But I think for a while that will go fine. I guess what you have to consider is, you know, if there's another spike, particularly around flu season, and everything kind of goes back and gets shut down again. To what extent will that limit them? What if there's an issue on Fight Island, whether they can't get going on time or there's an outbreak there? What does that do? Does Nevada get opened back up in a recent, you know, time? Uh, do you know, or, or does UFC at least get the opportunity to go back to the Apex Center? Uh, you know, they're not stuck in Florida forever. It's a lot of questions. I would say all 32, I don't know. That's a, oof, that's a lot. So that's very speculative. For the time being, I would be very confident. I'd be very, it's just, this thing is so hard to predict, man. It's just so hard to predict about what's going to happen. Um, the other thing I wonder about is, you saw Dana saying the Ultimate Fighter is going to come back. My hunch about that is, is, you know, it's actually, a, like, I don't know that I'm going to watch it. I'll probably watch the fights if they bring it back. But it's actually a great time to bring the Ultimate Fighter back. I mean, think about some of this realistically. One, dude, ESPN, they, they're desperate for content. And maybe even they put that on, on ESPN+. Plus. My hunch is that they don't. 
my hunch is that they put that on ESPN News or two, or maybe even regular ESPN. They need content badly, okay? Are you guys paying attention to who's out there saying they're not going to pay for shit? Dude, Dish Network is threatening to not pay ESPN. They're like, what are we paying you for? Do you know how much between Xfinity and Dish and DirecTV and all the other MSOs, do you know how much ESPN made last month for airing zero fucking sports? Do you know how much they made? $650 million. $650 million for airing nothing. <laughs> Not the last dance. But I mean live sports for airing nothing. They got $650 million. These, these places like Xfinity, like Dish, like DirecTV, they're like... What are we paying you for? We're not, you're not giving a shit. And they're beginning to threaten to not, not pay them. So ESPN needs content too, dude. Like you're, you're wondering why ESPN is having Dana on with Halle Berry to promote that contest, which I don't even know how you do that contest in Vegas if Vegas isn't reopened, but whole another story for a different time. Because, dude, they're hard up for content. They are hard up for it. So, one, ESPN, I suspect, badly wants it. Two, I wonder if they could use that and that would go towards any kind of contract fulfillment clauses that they might need. Three, again, what would the risks be of having the ultimate fighter in the middle of a pandemic? I don't know, but you could quarantine everyone quite literally in a much easier way than just flying people in week after week after week. So that's an easier challenge to actually maintain. And that's assuming that Apex opens back up, but okay, that seems like it's doable. And by the way, regional MMA is not going to get going anytime soon. So... What you would have is a situation where you would need to uh, essentially fulfill some of the tasks that regional MMA could not in the interim. Titan FC might be able to, but in general, like they're not going to be able to get going. They rely on the gate much too heavily. There will be no gate. So bringing that back, along with the Contender Series and other places, really begins to solve that problem. So my hunch is that, I don't know if it solves this exact issue that you're raising here, but... In general, the UFC and ESPN are probably going to go all in on each other in a way that they already have, even not even have not. They're going to it's going to like raise the level of interactivity between them. Six hundred and fifty million dollars for airing zero sports that can't last, dude. It can't last. I bet ESPN is like, what's that scene from Chappelle Show where it's like Rick James and he's doing this number, waving him on, you know? It's like that. Like, come on, UFC. Bring, bring as much as you want. Contender series, we'll air it. You know? Tough, we'll air it. Do you have any concerns about the quality of some of the upcoming UFC fights? We'll be seeing a Justin Gaethje without a full camp, a Tony Ferguson who'd been preparing for a different fighter and already cut weight, Cejudo who'd been preparing for Aldo, Cruz coming in on relatively short notice, etc., plus the issues around accessing training facilities and preferred sparring partners. Are you worried we'll end up with underprepared or suboptimal fighters? This person writes, part of me also worries that whoever loses their fight will then say, well, I went in underprepared, I didn't have a full training camp, and I was preparing for someone else, blah, blah, blah. And thus the fights will be devalued and delegitimized after the fact. I don't think there's any way around it. Um, this is what I was trying to explain to people around in April. You know, again, now it's a little bit different because people are just ignoring um, any kind of social distancing guidelines that they were being previously asked to adhere to. But, You know, what kind of quality fights are you going to get when people are training in their garages and they're doing Skype calls with their coaches? And you get pushback from fighters when you say stuff like that. Sajara Eubanks pushed back, which, by the way, she was like, I'll come on your show and debate you about it. We reached out for an interview, and uh, their people turned us down, didn't return a request. So not on me. I was happy to have that conversation. I guess um, whoever was in control of 
figuring out that media request was not. But in any event, you know, you can understand it because it sounds like, oh, fighters can only do something under the best of circumstances. But that's really not the argument. No one is suggesting fighters are not tough or can't adapt and overcome or often don't face situations where, like, I had, uh, I spoke to Carla Esparza today. She was saying she had camps where, like, she turned her ankle right before she couldn't train for 10 days. Like, they deal with stuff like this, stuff like this all the time. But what you're talking about here is, oh, well, this fighter turned her ankle and that fighter had a bad weight cut and this one is dealing with a nagging injury. Now you're dealing with one where it's like virtually everyone is affected at scale. Up and down the card you're getting it. Like There's no doubt in my mind on some level you're going to see people gassing more than normal. You're going to hear excuses for the people who lost. And it's like, I get it, you want to compete because you want to get paid, no doubt about it. But if you do it when you're not fully prepared and then you take a loss and then you get half your money, you know, there's real questions about what the value is in that. And for certain fighters, even that might be the right answer because they might really need the money. But it's it's all a risk, right? Again, it's all a risk. And they're going to have to decide for themselves, you know, what the right answer is. But for sure, I'm expecting some of that. I mean, it, it, I mean, think about it. It can't be that the training and the performance is just as good during a pandemic. If that is the case, that means that the level of training you're seeing and the and the stress of it has been grossly exaggerated, right? If you don't take, I mean, I don't know what y'all do. I'm working from home every day. I can't even, dude, my radio show has, it's, first of all, my radio show is going to be live next week for the first time in six weeks. Dude, COVID-19 messed New York up so bad, we can't even get into the building over there to like run the board so I can do, I haven't taken calls in six weeks because I can't. So you mean to tell me you can do your job just the same, just as well in the middle of a pandemic? If that's the case, you weren't doing your job for the most part very well before. Because even I, who, am, who have the luxury, literally the luxury of working from home, even I can't do it the same way. And I've got a Mac here. I've got a PC here. I've got a Sony a7 III. I've got a Shure mic. I've got two of them. I've got the, the Zoom L8 over here. I've got everything you could possibly want times 10. And even I can't bring it back. And I've got the codec over here that, that if when the, the studios are ready to go live, I can do it. And so you're asking, how am I going live next week? They're doing it on a remote studio. Um, and the only reason SiriusXM is letting me do it is because we have a live event on that Saturday. So they're giving it to us because we're the one sport with a live event. But I go back to a pumpkin the week after. So this is my point. It's like, oh, we can train just the same. Dude, if you can train just the same in the middle of a pandemic, something's wrong with your training. I don't believe I don't believe that at all. Again, individual circumstances will vary. Um, some might still be able to get, you know, the, the, well, the cardio won't get affected and some other smaller issues might get affected. It's going to affect everyone a little bit differently. But this idea that everything will just stay the same as it was when you had everything you needed, you could go any place you wanted to on the schedule that you wrote and you can do that when stay at home and shelter in place orders i just don't buy it i just don't buy it so how that will play itself out we'll have to see but that it will show itself one way or the other seems inevitable a lot of people are excited about uh how strong the ufc 249 card is on may 9th but i wonder how many pay-per-view buys it will do since the espn plus pay-per-view deal we rarely hear how many buys a card receives uh, well, in part because it's very much proprietary information that's hard to get. Well, I expect the prelims to draw well on ESPN. Does this card do over 150,000 buys? 
Yeah, probably, but I wouldn't say dramatically. Again, this is the big thing about losing Nurmagomedov. It was major star power being lost there. The all, mo- virtually all of it. I mean, this is the problem. This is why Ferguson, you, you feel for him because he's been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to like cross into that you know territory where you know Nate Diaz occupies and Jorge Masvidal occupies. So what I mean by that is you got all these guys at lightweight and welterweight and some of these other like deep weight classes that have been like kind of killing it there. I mean, they've had ups and downs, but they're you know they've been these mainstay forces there for a long time. And you're like, how is this dude not more popular, you know? And then, you know, here comes uh, Jorge Masvidal, new attitude off the reality show, beats Darren Till, three-piece in a soda, beats up Askren, beats Nate Diaz. And you're like, wow, man, this guy's just, he did it, you know? And then Nate Diaz, short notice, comes out, beats Connor, fights him again, blah, 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 beats Anthony Pettis, and then loses to Jorge. But still, he, he pulled and separated himself from the rest of the pack. Tony separated himself from the pack in terms of being a winner, and he's certainly more of a known commodity than, than he was, but that he's reached that next level. They're going to put him on Get Up, you know, or something like that on ESPN, their morning show. He has not reached that yet. And he's been trying to get over that hump. And beating Justin Gaethje, unfortunately, I don't think it does that. Now, maybe in the pandemic, things will change. It's, you know, hard to know. But this is my point. You lose, you lost, Habib crossed over. Um, but, but, but Tony hasn't yet. Um, so I don't know that it will do great buys. But again, so the point here for UFC is they're going to get a cut, a flat fee essentially no matter what, and then a cut of each individual buy on top. The one caveat to all of this is, and I brought this up in my video yesterday, I did on Khabib and Tony. Remember, the UFC makes money three ways off these pay-per-views. One, they get a flat fee. Two, above a certain threshold of pay-per-view buys, they get a cut of each individual buy. And then from any, they get a cut, um, and they control completely the cut from... Uh, distribution to commercial outlets, bars and restaurants and things like that. Okay, well, that's not going to be in play. It's not going to be in play at all. So the, only the two factors are there. And I don't know if this one really gets you over the hump. It's hard to know without greater specifics. But a Connor versus Khabib fight, however much you want to see it or not, almost certainly does. And I think that because – are you guys really paying attention to how much trouble Endeavor is in? They're not in existential trouble, but they <laughs> – <laughs> all this bullshit, like, again, MMA, you just can never have an argument about what the argument's actually about. Oh, it's about the fighters want to get out there, and we're having these events because, you know, it's American can do it, and it's, you know, it's Rosie the Riveter and all this shit. Dude, look, they might, some of that might be playing a role. I can't say that it's not. But they're obviously, in my opinion, they are obviously doing business because Endeavor is in deep shit. Real deep shit, dude. And this is a money... The UFC is a successful, well-run business. And Endeavor is leaning on them to bail them out. And so it just trickles down to you know the fighter level. And then they think it's all about media versus them or some other fucking... It's got nothing to do with any of that shit. It's about Endeavor and how much trouble they're in. And, uh, and so it just gets forced down on there. So... You know, that's part of the reason why I think Dominic Cruz got the call over a Sterling or a Sandhagen is because they need name, value, name, value, name, value, name, value. They're making this one because I don't know if there's a better one that they could make. And, you know, who would you pick outside of that in the top five that would really up the name value over Gaethje? That part's not clear. Um, You could have said Cerrone, but he already lost. So that's the one you go with. But you're going to see, I think, I don't know if we're going to necessarily directly see Khabib versus Connor because travel restrictions have to get lifted and... Khabib might just tell you to go pound sand. But assuming they can make it, 
<clears throat> chances are you're going to see that before you were ready because the pandemic has just forced a dramatic amount of pressure on Endeavor. Dude, they've had a bad year. Since that failed IPO, nothing has gone right, man. Nothing. The UFC is their lifeline, and it seems like they're intent on using it. Hi, Luke. Considering Rockhold states Khabib is stronger than most welterweights, how do you think a matchup between Khabib and Colby would look like? Yeah, I mean, I would need to see that played out. I mean, I know Rockhold said it, and I, I'm not necessarily here to say it's wrong. Um, but, you know, we got to see that. We got a few hurdles left. I need to see how he does against Tony if he fights him. I need to see how he does against Justin if he fights him. I have no doubt that Nurmagomedov is much stronger than most lightweights, if virtually all of them. But that doesn't mean he says he's stronger than most welterweights. Okay, well, even Colby is not most welterweights. He's in the elite one. Maybe top two, maybe the number one in the world if you got another shot at Kamaru. Like, that's not your average welterweight, dude. He's pretty goddamn strong, too. So, I would still favor. I mean, you ever seen Kamaru in person, dude? He's huge. And I've seen Khabib in person. He's not as big as Kamaru. Not even close. So, I'm a little skeptical of that claim. Well, no. I'm not skeptical of the idea that he's stronger than most welterweights. I'm skeptical of the idea that he's... And by the way, it's not just strength, it's skill and how the two pair. And Colby knows what he's doing. So, I think Colby would pro probably, probably be fine, but we'll have to see. Uh, WTF is Sambo. In your opinion, is it a more or less effective grappling art than BJJ? Effective for what? Is the question. So, so uh, there's a book I always recommend. Most martial arts books that I read are like just low-level trash. They're not very good. But there's a great one that I read. I always recommend it. It's called Falling Hard. It's about this individual uh, person's pers uh, journey into judo. But it's not just their journey into judo. They tell the story of judo. And judo has a really rich history, obviously, in Japan and Korea, but also Europe as well. And um, and anyway, so Sambo was invented by a guy. Uh, ultimately, Stalin had him killed. You could say even two guys. But it was essentially invented uh, in, in, by a guy who was an expert in judo. I forget his name. Stalin had him killed because he thought he was a threat. You know how they were killing like intellectuals and various people in positions of power? They killed him as a part of a purge to make sure that there was nobody who was a, a threat. Uh, and I believe the story is, God, I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head. It was designed as part of a system for the Russian military. And it had certain precepts uh, involved in it. And part of it was from some of the throws from judo, but also other sort of combat realities that they would face in various different contexts. And so it was this amalgam of different things that they had put together. So when you say effective, effective for what? You know, uh, for MMA purposes? Well, MMA is not exactly a street fight. You want to say effective for a street fight? might be better because you can throw from the feet a lot better. Um, there's a striking aspect that goes into it that would make it a little bit better than BJJ. If you're talking about just pure submission ability, well, it would depend on the rule set. But for a more open rule set, probably BJJ would be better because they, A, have more submissions, uh, and B, they're a little bit more submission-oriented, I think, uh, around that diversity itself. If you're talking about who has better arm bars, you might get a Sambo guy to be better than arm bars. Um, you know, it really just sort of depends on what you mean and for what level of competition and what kind of rule set. So I would say, you know, the fact that Sambo, Combat Sambo anyway, is a little bit more open-ended um, uh, makes it a little bit more valuable for different forms of hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
Um, if you're really looking for better submissions and more a complete array of them, probably jujitsu, especially in the gi. Of course, Sambo has the Kurtka as well. Uh, it's still, it's going to be probably BJJ because they just you know sit down to guard and start working you know all manner of different submissions in a way that I don't think Sambo ever really does. Sambo's like this mix between like wrestling and judo and its own version of submissions and. It's weird to watch. It's, a, it's it's an interesting sport. Uh, and there's like combat sambo, and then like there's non-combat sambo. I'm not sure what the technical term for it was. God, I really wish I had that book in front of me. This guy told the story of how it all came together. I read this book years ago. I probably have to revisit it. But uh, in any event, so is it a more effective grappling art than BJJ? Depends what your needs are. Everyone wants to say, what's the best? What's the most effective? I don't know, man. What are your needs? What's the best lifting program? I don't know. What are you trying to do? You're trying to put on muscle mass? You're trying to get like a great squat? Are you trying to really work on your, you know, snatch and clean and jerk? Like what, do you, like what is it you want? You know, it, all these things will tailor. Uh, how much time do you have? You know, uh, what's your body weight? Like do, what, what background do you have? Are you an athlete? Are you not? All these things will dictate what you need. MMA referee Mike Beltran did an interview, Beltran, on ESPN and briefly discussed his hopes for a half-point judging system in the amateur MMA circuit in California. Have you had time to look into this experimental point system? Yes. If so, what did you make of it? I don't like it. Now, that's my, you're asking my opinion. My opinion is I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Now, I like the idea that Mike has, which is uh, instituted at the amateur level as a way to collect data on its benefits and probably because he also likes it but rather than just uh forcing it onto the pros where it has really significant consequence doing it at the amateur level gives you a bit of a different sense of what it could do now that doesn't also tell you exactly it'll work that way in the pros but it gets you pretty close certainly closer than a lot of other things so i don't necessarily mind the suggestion by itself and again i don't know that the half point system is bad it's just here's what i've always found with this People want like more and more and more and more criteria. Let's you know it's ten seven rounds and ten six and a half and and uh, you know he, let's let's add all these different nuances to all the different. I found that the more you do that, the worse the judging gets. That's my belief. I tend to think you definitely want some parameters. You want some guideposts. You want some clear uh, principles and things you look for. You want some leadership in terms of explaining what matters. And then you want to leave it alone. I mean, there's a, I, you don't, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. And I've got lots of problems with one championship. You see that shit they tried to pull with that fundraiser? I mean, they are truly a shameless organization. But I like that style of judging the fight as a whole. I, I think you get better results with it. And you don't hear as many complaints about robberies in part because the figures are not as important and neither are the fights relative to UFC. So it's not apples to apples, but you just don't see a lot of people being like, fuck, man, that system really just ruins things for all the fighters over there. They just can't seem to, to get a fair shake. We really got to go. No one watches one fights or pride fights and goes, you know what's missing here? 10-point must system. That's what's missing here. You never hear that. And to me, it's because I, I think, again, you, it's not you can just say, well, you know, there's no direction that's needed. Eh, direction is needed. But not a, a little bit of less, I think, my personal opinion is that a little less goes to being a little bit more. 
Now, even that needs to be tested. Even what I am suggesting, I cannot really declare to you that I know that to be true. All I can say is that's my hunch. That's what I've sort of seen. But that's not a really scientific way of evaluating anything, is it? All of this would need to be tested. Having somebody change a scoring criteria here at stateside, if they could, if they were able to do that and judge things like that, you still have five five-minute rounds or three five-minute rounds. But then having a, a different system altogether to get you there, I think that would, um, I think that would be better, personally. Since I went a little, sort of a little late, I'll go a little longer before I jump to the, uh, the uh, paid questions. Uh, let's see here. If you could see a list of fighters and their fights which they competed in using PEDs, which were banned at the time of the fight, would you choose to see it or not? Fuck yes. Knowing that it may or may not change your opinion of some of your favorite fights, it wouldn't change a damn thing. <laughs> Are you kidding? It would change nothing about my opinion. I don't have the same scandalized attitude that many of you guys do about this. I understand why, why athletes in general use. I think in some cases it makes a dramatic impact. I think in other cases it does not. Uh, I think our distinction between what kind of advantages, real advantages, that we just naturally allow for and which ones we try to ban is incoherent and does not make sense when you really apply proper scrutiny to it. Uh, and uh, in a system where the fighters have very little control over their destiny and totally are unequal relationship with the promotion, it's not that I feel great about somebody breaking the rules per se, but I understand why they might feel compelled to look for every possible advantage, irrespective of just the fact that the competition is difficult, but because the entire industry is tilted against them. And once you begin to realize all of these factors, like you'll just let a certain amount of advantages that have enormous effect on who wins and who loses. No one just gives a shit. And then and here's this other one, the sort of chemical advantage that people are trying to introduce. And, you know, I know some of you will never agree with this. I understand. Uh, it doesn't change my opinion hardly at all. I mean, it would a little bit, right? I mean, how good someone actually really is um, without it versus with it. I mean, again, sometimes there can be a big change. Sometimes there can't be. I'd be curious to know that. But, you know, some of my favorite memories were from the absolutely two people roided up to the fucking gills. I mean, okay, they can't call it performance enhancing and say it makes the sport worse, right? You can say it has a um, deleterious effect on sports because it sets a bad example or there's cheating involved or something. But baseball is never better than when people are using steroids, right? right? Track and field is you don't get nearly the same results. I won't say nearly, but... You don't get the same level of results with performance-enhancing drugs as you do. Like strength sports would just not be what they are without performance-enhancing drugs. They make sports, in terms of the performance, they make sports better. We can debate about whether or not it's good for sport to have that kind of thing in there. Um, so all of a sudden, it won't make fighting better, you know? Uh, maybe, maybe not, but I, I, it's not my view. In any event, sure, I would love to see the. I would love to see the list. Partly because there's a lot of people who I get held up as heroes, clean athletes, who I'm certain I've been using this whole time. I think there's a lot of mythology about who's using and why. All right, here's a question about at-will employment. Thoughts on at-will employment. I believe there should be protections for employers, but it seems this gives them the power to arbitrarily change hours, location, pay. You're asking what an at-will employee, employee is. It's most of us. If you have a full-time job, uh, 
you're almost certainly an at will employee, right? They can fire you at will. Not for any, not, they can't discriminate against you, but they can otherwise fire you at will. Uh, it seems that the rights the earlier generations picketed for are now being used against workers. Yeah, well, I mean, you're, there's all kinds of reasons why you don't want to have at will employees, right? It creates an us versus them mentality between management and rank and file. Um, it it make, it doesn't allow for people to have creative responses to um, solutions because they're afraid that they could step on toes of people above them. They can't really like if someone above you sucks and the person above you you're trying to tell them that you won't because you don't want to lose your job because you don't want to come in between this and that person. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why at will employment blows, which is why I wouldn't want to get rid of at will employment per, like in totality, but having well, partly the fact that unionization has collapsed in this country in general is a big reason why some of the more nefarious problems with outwill employment have revealed themselves. But yeah, in general, um, I think the solution to it would, well, one, you could sort of define the terms of how you are hired and, and not. But uh, another problem would be like you don't want to mess up your job because that's where your health care comes from. So separating health care from your job would go a long way towards solving this problem. Having some union protections would go a long way towards solving this problem. But yeah, that's my, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, so, I mean, there's better people to ask about this. So that's just my general view. Uh, okay. So let's go to your questions. If we can here. Uh, let's see. All right. Not too many today. That's good. Uh, hey Luke, with the fight Island, not having an official commission when the UFC hosts events on the Island, in the future, they should try out new rules. Sure. I mean, if you're going to go ahead and self-regulate, why don't you self-regulate in an interesting way? Right? Perfect opportunity. Let's try judge fights as you go. Or, uh, you know, judge, judge, you know, not 10-point must system, but judge fights as a whole. Let's do that. Uh, in the past, you were an MMA guy who didn't like boxing. I don't know if I ever said that. Maybe I did. I don't know. How did boxing eventually win you over? I, it wasn't that exactly. So my, my, the way it happened for me was I had covered boxing. Uh, at first I didn't, I liked boxing a little bit as a kid, but not a, you know, Mike Tyson, stuff like that, you know, or Roy Jones Jr. and stuff like that. But I wasn't, I was very casual, let's say. And then when I started covering MMA uh, and getting into MMA, it really made me appreciate a lot of different combat sports, including boxing. And when I was on my own at Bloody Elbow and then early on at SBNation.com, the mothership site, I was covering, I got to do basically whatever I wanted. So I was just covering boxing, MMA, whatever, you know, whatever suited my fancy. And then when uh, they purchased MMA fighting from AOL, all that went away. And at that point, I just kind of didn't have time to really get into boxing. And now, um, being with Showtime, it's a much more prominent place in my life. So, uh, so now I'm sort of more back into it. But, but then even this phase of it, I didn't appreciate as much. You know, doing those breakdowns I've done for Morning Combat Dissected and to a lesser extent Monday Morning Analyst, well, both I suppose, has gotten me better at analyzing fights in general. Like I've just, that, that has been better over time. And now that I'm really realizing just how sophisticated the technique is in boxing and the little tiny details that have tremendous impact on it, it just has become much more exciting for me. Much more exciting. And I think without attention to those details uh, I don't blame people for sort of being bored by it but if you can find a way to self-educate and again I, I know nothing compared to the average coach but I'm saying relative to what I used to know I know a lot more it's just been a majorly it's been so it's been fun you know why because I mean here's a new thing I can enjoy you know I, I don't have to enjoy anything else any less I can now enjoy this more and it has made such a such a dramatic impact <clears throat> 
Dustin says, thanks for the content. Jason says, if you got arrested for something, what would your friends and family assume you did? That's an interesting one. I'm a pretty law-abiding guy. Disturbing the peace? <laughs> Probably. Making a scene. Distur- so disturbing the peace. For sure. This person says, Luke, you're the best. I doubt that. Uh, wondering if you could wish my girlfriend. Y'all want to do shout-outs? All right. I'll do it just this once. But don't do that. Happy birthday, Emma. All right? May the fourth be with you. This is not... I don't want this to be cameo where it's like, uh, person's like, uh, hey, uh, Jennifer, your boyfriend says, uh, you suck and, uh, he wants to break up with you for your girlfriend, uh, Allison. Also, you give terrible head. All right. That's what he says. It's not me. You know, have a nice day. I mean, I just don't want to be that guy. I just don't want to be that guy. All right. Watching Saku Hoist one, it's the 20th anniversary of 2000 Pride Grand Prix. Do you have any fond memories of those old events? Uh, I remember racing home to watch. God, what was that? God, what Josh Barnett fight was that? Racing home to watch old Pride events when they happened live. Um, I was a, I was a late late work shift. Um, God, what what was that? I cannot remember. I don't know. I don't have any one memory like that per se, but just waiting for pride to happen or even pride was fun. Cause you would go to bed, you know, and then if you weren't like me and you'd wake up and then you see the results on MMA.tv and you'd be like, Oh my God, I have to see this fight. It was, it was that, that was a lot of fun because it would happen obviously overnight a lot of times. Um, but that's about it. Uh, Nathan says, I want to send a few bucks to support the channel. Say thanks for hosting. What was by far the most fun way I donated to charity last month. Direct donation is one thing, but getting to ask silly MMA questions in the process is ideal. There you go. That's what I'm here for. Uh, how far will Tony's stock drop if he loses to Justin on May 9th? And if Tony does win, how likely do you see him fighting Khabib before Connor? Well, based on Dana's statements, I don't know about the latter. How far would his stock drop? It would hurt him because he hasn't lost in a long time, and it would be indicating maybe you know, 37 coming up on it that like, you know, the window kind of passed and he just wasn't able to make it happen. So it's because of his age, less than the loss itself, that I suspect will play into it. But, you know, let me just be one, let me say one word of caution. I've been a little too dismissive of people with losses who are a little bit older who found ways to rebound. And if anyone has the drive and the will to come back from a loss, it's got to be Tony. So I'm not saying that a stock would not drop and that you should not take age into account. Be very careful about what that means with him. Luke, during your time in the Marines, did you ever have any inter- interactions with MARSOC? Yes. Or any Special Forces units? Yeah, not the Raiders. I didn't know anything about the Raiders at the time. We did some MARSOC guys. Had to, did some call for fire missions with them. Uh, teaching them how to do it on a CAX, actually. Yeah, once. Uh, Wesley McDonald, last ep you said Frank Shamrock was the best of the 90s. What about Boz and Hickson? Question, top three pound-for-pound pound 90s uh, fighters in order. I'd have to look up the 90s fighters to really say for sure. And I know Frank Shamrock you know, and Boz had their whole thing in Pancrase, but like MMA style, I think Frank – dude, I, I went back and um, – well, I can't spoil it, but I had recently f- for, an, for a piece of work that uh, I can't say much more about, but just sort of stay tuned. I had to go back and watch old Frank Shamrock fights. Dude, he was ahead of his time. He was way ahead of his time. The striking he was doing where he was splitting people's timing 
and uh, just how he mixed his game together. I mean, there was a reason why he was a big deal when he was a big deal. That dude was way ahead of his time. And, of course, he had some tough losses on his record, too, even during the time when he was young. But he was really special. And those other guys were, too. But Hickson just didn't compete long. I mean, Hickson, I think, lives and surfs on a lot of mythology. He was obviously very good. But he didn't have exactly an extensive record of once you can you could measure a lot. Um, and... And and I, and I know Frank had the issue, you know, losing to Boz, I think, in Pancrase. But still, Frank and, and Boz is great. I mean, he's amazing. But Frank was showing things that, that it would just for NHB slash MMA just far beyond his peers in terms of technical sophistication at the time. Is Usada parting ways with strict liability? They already did. They already did. Strict liability is the idea that if anything is caught in your system. Uh, you know, even if you didn't mean to put it in there, you're responsible for it. And they have realized in a world full of contaminants, that's not really possible. Boy, I can't wait to see how that intersects with life in a lockdown in a pandemic where you're constantly bathing in chemicals, um, you know, to stay clean, quite literally clean to this touch. We'll see how that goes. Who has the better pure striking, Alexander or Connor? Which Alexander? Do you think Connor will still be champ if you stayed at 145 weight cut aside? No. No, because the weight cut I think would affect his performance over time. I think you mean Volkanovski? Volkanovski has the more, in, when you say better, Connor's is more devastating and Connor's is more lethal, especially early. Volkanovski's is built to last and is built for virtually any opponent. And is designed to never really let you get started, but is not nearly as much of a threat to finish as Connor's. So they, they really they seek to do two different things. One is to merely overwhelm you with timing and trickery and angles and volume and misdirection. And the other one has, of course, those elements in play, but is designed to last or designed to blast, designed to really cause serious altering damage and to really stick it to people and then alter the course of a fight. Whereas, you know, if someone just said to Volkanovsky arbitrarily in the middle of a fight, hey, there's actually seven rounds this this bout, his striking style would be perfectly suited to just keep going. Baron Von Donk, does the winner of Francis uh, Rosenstruck get Stipe next, or are we both looking down the barrel of the DC trilogy? Well, again, so you've got Stipe being like, I'm not fighting in the middle of a pandemic. Meanwhile, Francis and Rosenstruck are literally fighting in the middle of a pandemic. And DC's clock is ticking. But he's saying, well, I'm not going to fight. So Stipe might be out. But DC's saying, I'm not going to fight anyone but them. Someone was asking me earlier, should Francis and Rosenstruck be for an interim title? Got to tell you, I don't hate the idea. Don't hate it. If you've got a guy saying, I'm only going to fight this other guy. And then this other guy saying, I'm only going to fight when there's no pandemic. And... The winner of that bout, uh, bout, the winner of that bout, when they face Stipe or DC or whoever it ends up being, they get paid more. Like I've sort of had a bit of a change on interim. I mean, it's like I don't give a damn what you know what it's supposed to confer or not confer upon them. They can take it away any moment they want. But if it gets guys paid more in a system where they get you know desperately underpaid, yeah, sure, I don't care. Jake says a little support. Love your stuff. Thank you, Jake. 
Sammy says, do you think people aren't considering the fact that Tony, Justin, and Connor all share the same last opponent? They're here to talk about MMA math, but would love your thoughts. Ha, huh, that's funny. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, but what's that supposed to mean? Like, they're all... Do you think people aren't considering the fact that Tony, Justin, and Connor all share the same common opponent for the last fight? Yeah, but it's a credentialed fighter, and all three of them won, of course. Some more devastating than others. Um, I don't think that that means a whole lot, other than that's a guy who fights a lot of... It's the whole point about Cowboy, right? Like, he fights all the top guys, and maybe, I think, quite obviously, at a clip, far too, far too much... Um, but how they each performed is different because Justin got him after Tony and Connor got him after Tony and Justin. And each subsequent time he showed up there, for lack of a better description, uh, it got worse. You could say it's because Justin's better than Tony and then Connor's better than Justin. But I don't think that's really the story. To me, the story is the dude was ground to a pulp, which I had made this week. Um, so it's an interesting note, but I wouldn't read into it because. It wasn't like Tony fought him in 2013 and then Justin last month and then Connor two years ago. It was all one after the other and so and in very rapid succession. So that tells me that you're getting a lesser version every time. Kevin says, Luke, you said before you felt Valentina won the Nunes rematch. I watched again. I felt Nunes won a razor-thin decision. UFC stats had Nunes bested Shevchenko in striking rounds one, two, and three, and four, and two takedowns. Do you remember your scores? No, I'd have to go back and look. It was close. It was close. I'd have to go back and look. Who's the better striker, Wonderboy or Connor? Well, for MMA, it's got to be Connor, right? Because who has used it to better effect? I know there's a lot of like, there's this dude, uh, do you guys know Lucas Bourdon on uh, Twitter? He's not much of a believer in Wonderboy. Now, I think Wonderboy's a very, obviously, high-level fighter, but uh, he always has a test. Everyone's like, oh, when a Wonderboy was a... Undefeated kickboxer, and his answer or his response to that is, okay, name someone that he beat. Um, which is to say, you know, Wonderboy obviously is, a, I think, a very good kickboxer, certainly a very good kickboxer in MMA, but leveraging, and he's got, he probably is a fuller, more complete striker than Connor. Connor has a very narrow universe that he employs, but it's just so devastating. So devastating. Uh, Mushtak K says, all this pandemic era revelations. You see, the relationship between UFC and its athletes will actually change. As we saw, both sides will diporate for each other's contribution and their money. What the fuck? Uh, well, you know what? Everyone was. I, get, I got asked a lot in the last mm, two months, whatever, however long it's been. God, however long it's been. Um, oh, is this going to be the time where MMA fighters, you know, unionize? And I'm always like, I'm always like, dude, MMA is so. Motherfucking broken. So broken. That, A, no one can piece together that the fighters are just part of this process so that UFC can help bail out their parent company, which, again, there might be other reasons why that these events are happening. That is a massive one, and that we can't have a conversation about that when it obviously plays a significant role is just absurd, number one. Number two, it's like, dude, if your manager's fiduciary responsibility is to you, it is not to the organization, but... The industry is so broken that managers now feel like if I tie my interests to this ship, 
even if it comes at the expense of my client in certain ways, there might be other ways roundabout where it comes back better. So why don't I just do that? So you have managers who have tied their fiduciary interest, not to their client in the explicit terms in which they're supposed to, but in roundabout ways, but more directly to the ultimate fighting championship. That's so broken. And then the fire's like, oh, the media's out to get you. Yeah, is the media out to get you by advocating on behalf of you getting paid without fighting? I mean, understand something. Vox had some layoffs. Uh, Gannett had layoffs, which has affected, and furloughs, which has affected already people inside MMA, and it's going to be more of it. And these are people who have expressly advocated for no shows, even though that would hurt their bottom line and probably cost some of them their jobs already. And then on top of it, it's like, let me see if I understand the argument. The argument is MMA media calling for you to be paid and not catch a disease is anti-fighter. On what fucking planet, my guy? On what planet? Because it's not this one. But... If you've tied your interests into the organization, if you have hitched yourself to that wagon rather than the communal interest of all of you together in contrast to that, like literally every other sport uh, which operates as it's supposed to, uh, then you get a different result. You get a different, It's just MMA is so completely, utterly broken. In MMA media, there's a lot of them that have hitched their wagon to UFC too, right? Not, you know, it's not just the fighters doing it, but it is everything is backwards. And it's not about the UFC being evil actors here. They're going to do what they're going to do. It's about if they have a right to look out for their own interests, then every other party has a right to look out for their own interests. And again, there's going to be certain, there's going to be diversity of opinion, all that kind of stuff. But you're asking what change. It looks to me like it has taken what is already broken and made it even more messed up. That's my read on all of this. The chat aside, are MMA fans more belligerent to each other than other sport fans, in your opinion? Ye- well, social media magnifies dispute, so maybe somewhat, yeah. I've recently gone back to watch a ton of early MMA tournaments. It is shocking to me how guys like Igor and Hoist got through multiple of them alive. What three active fighters would have an edge over their contemporaries? Volkanovsky, if size was not an issue. Who's built to last? Um, maybe Cowboy, depending. Um, Diaz brothers. Uh, yeah, those are some good answers. Do you think it is very unlikely we will see stars who impact gate numbers like Jones, McGregor, Khabib not fighting during the pandemic with no gates? They don't get a cut of the gate. In bo- you know what's amazing? Boxing, where you got guys like Bud Crawford or, you know, they had 17 million. They had a $17 million gate for Wilder Fury 3, right? And Wilder and Fury get a cut of that. Boxing is going to come back, but the question is with who? (laughs) The weird paradox, this is why fans don't complain, but the weird paradox of MMA is the fighters relative to other industries are clearly far and away the most mistreated, but because they have such few rights and any kind of entity to look out for them and protect their interests opposite the corporation hiring them to fight, um, you're actually going to see more of the A-list ones doing it. You got A-list ones doing it? This coming weekend, no, we're not the second, but the but the ninth, right? I mean, that's that's happening. So it's hilarious. It's hilarious. Boy, a lot of questions about Wonder Boy. How would you see him in a match between Usman? I think Usman would, have, would give him a very bad day, and I like him, but I just don't like his chances. 
I watched Jim Can't Swim video on War Machine, another incredible YouTube channel to watch. People have recommended that. I've not seen it. I've not seen it. Thoughts on Justin Amash impact on the election? I don't know. Um, I think people are worried about Biden's chances because, you know, it's like weekend at Bernie's with that fucking guy. I saw people being like, oh, you know. So no one wants to ask him about Tara Reid's sexual assault allegations. The guy skates for weeks on this. Finally, MSNBC pitches up front like, hey, we're going to ask him on Morning Joe so he could telegraph the whole thing. I bet you they even sent him the questions. I don't know that, but that's my hunch. Anyway, you know, whatever. They asked the guy, and I saw people being like, you see, he, he doesn't have obvious cognitive decline. And I'm like, let me get this straight. He gets through one event without walking off camera or losing his train of thought, even though he's already done that multiple times. And all of a sudden, we've declared him, you know, cognitively locked in. Okay. But all right. Justin Amash is a guy of principle, but he's running for the Libertarian Party. I don't think he's going to pull a lot of, I mean, who's he going to pull? Never Trumpers? They're going to vote for Biden. Um, and even though he was you know, formerly a Republican, and you know, are progressives going to vote for him? Like, I, I just, I don't understand. I mean, I understand why he's running for the Libertarian Party, given the considerations, but that's not a good fit, and it's not clear to me who he's going to pull. Do you agree that Luke Rockhold has one of the best skill sets in the UFC? In his prime, yes. Certainly has the best kicking game for me. His ground game, which is great. He doesn't use. He did against Lyoto. And for some reason, his top, uh, his top is scale, too. I'm not sure what that means. But in any event, um, yeah, no, he has great, great ground game. But again, the defense and the movement have to all be a part of it for it all to work. And when those pieces are missing, it's not exactly as good. Uh, okay. Appreciate everybody watching. Um, I will let you know once I make the donation. Put everything above board so you guys can check on it if you want. Um, let's see. Hold on. Da, 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 da. Subscribe. Yeah, there we go. Thumbs up and subscribe. Again, one more time. Thank you to everybody who made a donation. 2180 was the number, and I'll put 320 on top, which gets us to an even 2500. Really, really appreciate everybody who helped us get this far. It means a lot. I know it's a modest amount for what someone like Conor McGregor could give or whatever, but um, hey, he also said in his tweet to me, uh, every little bit matters. So that's true. Yeah? Take care of yourselves, be safe, you know, obey the rules, that kind of a thing. Thank you guys so much for watching, and until next time, stay frosty.